0: In John chapter 10, this entire chapter has made use of the imagery of the good shepherd. And so we've seen in a lot of ways in this chapter of what it means to have life in Jesus Christ, what it means for him to be not just a shepherd, but the shepherd, the good shepherd, for us to be the sheep of his pasture, those that belong to his sheepfold, this kind of Language. We've been warned against thieves and robbers, what it means to be the flock of God and to be led in and out and to find good pasture, protected and led by the good shepherd himself, Jesus Christ. And so that actually continues now in chapter 10. We've reached a point in this chapter now where we jump ahead in time. So there was another feast that Jesus was at that led us through the first few verses of John chapter 10. Now we make our way forward in time to another, but Jesus continues to use this imagery of him as the good shepherd and we as his sheep and his flock. And now in this conversation, he does a lot of things that forces decision and commitment. Jesus does this often in his conversations with people. This is who I am. And who I am requires decision on your part. This this requires commitment on your part. So some are ready for that and others are not. And we get more of that conflict in the crowd as this conversation unfolds through the end of this chapter. Now the tension around the life of Jesus Christ is rising. And in the Gospel of John now, we're right at this sort of uh, teeter-totter fulcrum point where as we turn from chapter 10 to chapter 11, we are now essentially on our way to the cross. And so the tension about who Jesus is and those who don't like him and those who want to get rid of him, that tension continues to rise inside of this chapter. So more people are pressing him on his claims to be God. They know that he claims it, but they're divided about what to do with that. There's another attempt to kill Jesus inside of this chapter, But Jesus avoids it. Christ has told us not very long ago that he is the one who is in control of his life, and he will lay it down, and he will take it up again. So it doesn't matter how many attempts there are to take his life, until the moment arrives, Christ is in full control of that moment. And this point of decision is, will you believe? And he continues to talk about what it means to be inside of the flock of Christ, the people of God. So in our passage today, a couple of the thoughts are going to help us hold things together today. First of all is exactly that thought, what it means to be in the flock of God. There's a kind of summary inside of this passage where Jesus takes a lot of the big ideas that have been talked about so far in John chapter 10 and then adds a few more, and he talks about what it means again to belong to him and to his people. So in short, what we're going to see is this, about what it means to be a believing part of the church and this beautiful, dynamic relationship that we have with Jesus Christ when we believe in Him. So what it means to be a part of the flock of God. And then this question, what will I do with Jesus? What will I do with Jesus? And I think there's a twist or turn here at the end of this chapter that we really need to hear. First of all, will I believe? Many don't. Why don't they? Well, there's an interesting answer to that question inside of this passage, why they won't believe in Jesus and who he is. And if I do believe in Christ, what does that mean? There is this benefit of abundant life with Jesus Christ, but what about my level of commitment to the shepherd and to the rest of his flock? So there's benefit to being In the church of Jesus Christ. But what about my commitment to him and to the rest of the church of Jesus Christ? All of this is going to be pressed inside of this passage of Scripture. So let's begin reading in John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. The passage goes like this. And at the time, excuse me, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Some powerful stuff inside of this passage. First of all, John gives us this chronological marker. We've moved forward a little bit in time to get to the end here, the end section of John chapter 10. He says, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. The feast of dedication, this is what you and I know of as Hanukkah. So they're celebrating it here during the life of Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't know a little bit about what Hanukkah is, it celebrates this period of time between the end of the Old Testament, literally the end of the chronology of the Old Testament, and before the beginning of the New Testament, so between the last book of the Old and the first book of the New. We have uh, have this era between the rule of the Greeks and the rule of the Romans. And we've got this family amongst the Jewish priestly class called the Maccabees, and they grow fed up with the rule of the Greeks and those who had actually put pagan idols inside of the temple. So the Maccabees lead this uprising, this revolt, and they throw off uh, pagan worship, they cleanse the temple, and they reestablish worship to God inside of that temple. And so every Hanukkah is a celebration of the rededication of the temple to the worship of God. So that happens before the life of Jesus Christ, and here they are at the Feast of Dedication. And John just simply says, and it is winter. It's actually the month of December. Hanukkah is still celebrated in the month of December. That's just chronologically when it falls. Now inside of the Gospel of John, what this tells us, is that we're now just a few months away, maybe just about three, four months away from the cross itself. So we're getting closer and closer and closer to that moment in the life of Jesus Christ. So it's the feast of dedication. It's the middle of winter. Jesus is walking around the temple and he's teaching people. And a group of Jews come up to him and say, how long will you keep us in suspense if you are Christ? Tell us plain lame. So this group confronts him with the clarification of whether or not he's just going to come out and say, I am the Messiah. I am the one who was foretold by the Old Testament. I am the Son of God. Now, what's interesting about this is that in the English, we don't have those words in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, behold, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. But what we have seen is that Jesus has said this clearly enough and plainly enough over and over throughout the Gospel of John that we already have a plot by the Pharisees to kill him. We already have other Jews who are so tired of this kind of blasphemy, a man who claims that he is God, he can't be running around doing this kind of thing, that they're dividing others, they're creating this controversy, and they become part of the plot to kill Jesus themselves. So they know what Jesus has said. This question is intended to get him into more trouble. But Jesus is smarter than that. He knows how to run this conversation. And this is a point of interpretation and understanding scripture. Because again, a lot of skeptics will say silly things like, well, Jesus never said he was God. Well, when we listen to those who first heard Jesus say these words, they're so angry that he keeps saying he's the Son of God that they want to kill him. What do these things mean to those who first heard them? Well, they know who Jesus claims to be. So this is just an argument for the sake of argument. This is an argument to get Jesus into even more trouble. So what does Jesus say? now? The way Jesus responds, I think, is important for us to understand. and In fact, he presses something that opens up an important question for you and me later on when we get to the end of chapter 10. So Jesus answers and says in verse 25, I told you, I've already told you this, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. I've told you and you don't believe me. I've shown you and you don't believe me. So Jesus says both of these things are the case, and still you refuse to believe me. In fact, later on, they're going to call the things that Jesus did miracles. They know this. They've seen this. They've heard the reports of this. They know what Jesus has done. But they're not his sheep. Jesus says you haven't heard me because you are not my sheep. Jesus has told us already in John chapter 10 that his sheep hear his voice, and they'll follow him. It will cut through every other voice. It will cut through all of the confusion and the cacophony of voices that are out there. And his sheep will hear him, and they will follow him no matter what. But Jesus continues to speak, and Jesus continues to perform miracles, even amongst those who refuse to believe. And we notice again, and I think this is still important for us to hear. We've said this a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, but it just keeps coming back to me. Those who refuse to believe do not stop our act of witness and testimony. We bear witness. We speak to those that we love who we know need to know Jesus Christ. And even if they don't believe or refuse to believe there is a season where they don't, it doesn't stop us bearing witness. The church continues to gather to bear witness to Jesus Christ, even if there are those around us who think this is the dumbest thing we could be doing with our Sunday mornings. We continue to bear witness to the truth. And we do it so that the world will have an opportunity to respond. Friends, who does and does not respond to belief is a matter of the sovereignty of God and the will of human beings. Scripture tells us that in our sin, our wills are locked against God. The way Paul puts it is that we are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. But what God does through the presence of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit goes before us, bears witness opens the door for us to believe, speaks the truth of Jesus Christ, even does a work of regeneration inside of our hearts, and then we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and yet there are still those who will not believe. And yet Jesus bears witness, and yet the church still gathers, yet we continue to bear witness to the truth in Jesus Christ. So Jesus says in verses 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice. I told you, let's see here, verse 26, 27, 28, 27. Here we go. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those two verses are incredible. Those two verses act a little bit like a summary of just about everything that's been said so far in chapter 10 about what it means to follow the Good Shepherd. So he mentions some things that we've talked about before and he throws in some other things that we haven't had a chance to talk about much yet about what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. And there are essentially five things in this list. I want to make sure we hear this. What life is like with Jesus. We may even call them the benefits of belonging to Jesus Christ and to His church. And the first is this, as Jesus lists it, the church listens to His voice. The voice of Christ is how we cut through the noise of the world around us. What is true? What is right? What is good? What is important in this life? What actually transforms the human person? What does my family need? What does my neighborhood need? What does my culture need to fix what is so broken with it? Well, the church follows the voice of Jesus Christ. And sometimes it gets crowded out. Sometimes it's hard to hear. But you and I, as the followers of Jesus Christ, we are tasked with this. It is part of our responsibility to hear the voice of Jesus Christ clearly and to speak the voice of Jesus Christ clearly. We're tasked with speaking the truth of Jesus. And we cannot do that unless we are taking the time and effort to listen to Him. I've been doing this for a while now. I know I don't look at day over 29. That's okay. You're you're a very flattering group of people. I appreciate that. But I've been doing this for a while now. And the church gets wrapped up in accepting the world's narrative about life so easily. It seems so powerful. All the smart and beautiful people are saying it. Everything that's trending online is saying it. And it's so easy for the church to fall into lockstep and make some sort of churchy version of the narrative that the world has about what is good and right and true. And every time that happens, the church just sort of begins to slide off the side of the hill. It is so important for us to keep our eyes on Christ, to keep our ears on Christ. It's important for us. And it's important for the culture around us, the people around us, that they see and hear in us the clear voice of the truth of Jesus Christ, because that's what is right and good and true about the human condition in every single one of us. Christ's sheep hear His voice. I just, I keep coming back to what He said early in chapter 10, they hear my voice and I call them by name. He knows your name. He speaks your name, and He draws you to Himself. It's absolutely beautiful. So the church hears the voice of Jesus Christ. And then it goes by quickly in this list, but Jesus comes back to it later on in chapter 10, so it's important. The church gets to know Jesus. He's going to say later on that, Those who follow Him gain knowledge and understanding of who He is. They know Him, and then know Him even better is the way the language works in the Greek. But the church gets to know Jesus. So we get to know that what He says is true, and we get to know that who He is is true. There is nothing that Jesus says that is false. Everything He says is true. Everything about him is right and good and true as well." So we read his words on the page, and we're learning that they're right and true. But part of what's so beautiful about this is that Jesus is not just a figure in the page, Jesus has walked out of the tomb, he's alive and well, and he is on the loose. We can actually get to know who he is and walk in relationship with Jesus Christ. Biblical knowledge is an interesting thing. When Scripture uses the concept or the term of knowledge, there's a lot of ways to understand how knowledge works, but I love the way the Christian author Dallas Willard describes biblical knowledge, and he uses this phrase, it's interactive relationship. Biblical knowledge is interactive relationship getting to know who someone is, getting to know what they are like, actually walking in relationship with them. It's actually a matter of experience. So in that experience, we read his words and what he says is true. But in that experience, we also get to know who he is and that he himself is right and true as well. We can know about other religious figures, but they're dead and gone. We get to know who Jesus is because he is alive and well. This reminded me of this really dynamic passage of Scripture about this very topic. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is talking about what it means for him to to know Christ. The larger context is this this powerful image of, of Paul telling the Philippians, I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to know him. And here's part of what he says about the knowledge, knowledge of Jesus. And notice how this language is full of the language of experience. Not just so that I can know it to pass a test and get into heaven, but it's the language of experience. Philippians 3, verses 10 through 11. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. That's knowledge. That's interactive relationship. And who can say this? I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So as he says, I'm making my way to the end of my life, I want to experience Christ so much that I will experience the resurrection from the dead as well. It's not just knowledge it's not just knowledge that it's knowledge of who Jesus is the church hears his voice and Jesus says you get to know me I get to know you there's this powerful interactive relationship with Jesus and then Jesus says and then the church walks with Jesus my sheep follow me to walk with him to follow him It's very simply to pattern our lives after Him and His teaching, to live this life as though Jesus were living it in me. This is what it means to walk with Him, to follow Him. And that language of walking with Jesus is throughout Scripture. If you don't read the Proverbs on a regular basis, start reading the Proverbs on a regular basis, and you're going to run into that language over and over. The wise person walks in this way. The foolish person walks in this way. It's our manner of life and how it aligns with the wisdom of God. But to pattern our lives after Jesus Christ will become a more and more powerful combination as time moves on, a church that teaches the truth, And then a church that lives the truth as well. Doesn't just stand in the corner wagging its finger at the rest of the world, but a church that knows how to live its daily life as ambassadors to Jesus Christ, as people who can bear witness and testimony to the Good Shepherd, and to call others to live with Him. Every epistle that Paul writes has this movement in it, where the last chapter or two, the last half of the epistle, Paul moves from talking about who Jesus is to how you and I should live in response. And there's always this moment where we know where that is. And Ephesians chapter four, verse one is one of those. The apostle Paul calls us to walk after Christ, and he puts it like this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Tomorrow morning, when you log in to work, when you go to school, when you get in your car and you're on the way to what you're doing next on Monday morning, Paul says, I urge you right now to walk in a manner that is worthy of the life that Christ has given you. My sheep follow me, Jesus says. He says, and I give them eternal life. And I think we've done a lot to talk about eternal life and abundant life here in John chapter 10. This is that chapter, John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus over and over through the gospel of John so far has said, and if they believe in me, they will receive eternal life. This is the way in. He is the door. He is the gate. He is the good shepherd. The church receives life abundant and life eternal. Such an important piece of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, the one and only way. And then Jesus says this. He says, I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my head. If you belong to Jesus Christ, there is nothing in all of heaven and earth, things that you can't see, things that you can see. If you belong to Jesus Christ, none of them, not even all of them, can snatch you out of the hands of Jesus Christ. The church receives security in Jesus. The church receives security. Who is there to condemn me if Christ is the one who justifies me? I stand in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In a moment in time in history, when kingdoms are being shaken to their core, we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. No one will snatch them out of my hands. I love a phrase like this. I love a thought like this. Because every now and then, in our emotional excitement and in the the, the throes of, of love and commitment to people that we genuinely love and have committed ourselves to, we will say things like this. I will take care of you. I will protect you. I will do everything for you I possibly can. We mean those things with all sincerity. But we all know in the end we are nothing but human beings, and we cannot fulfill those promises in the end. Nobody can say this except the God who is above all things. You are in my hands. Jesus says, and no one will snatch you away from, away from me. And then he says, and you know what? The Father is greater than them all, and you are in his hands, and no one can pluck you out of his hands. The church receives security in Jesus Christ, and learning this can absolutely change your life. Learning this, absorbing this, can absolutely change your life. You reminded me of, of something um, that probably none of you have read, maybe some of you have heard of. One of the, one of the early catechisms of the Protestant church, these great big long question-and-answer things that were intended to be teaching devices in the church, the Heidelberg Catechism. All right here's another one of those moments where you can walk out of here, you can impress your friends with, well, the Heidelberg Catechism says, right? But the church has been using this. Parts of the church have been using this to teach and train the next generation of believers since the mid-1600s. So it stood the test of time pretty well. But the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. I'm going to read this slowly so that we can kind of absorb this. It's an old language, but that's okay. But I'm going to read this slowly so that we can absorb this a little bit. Question number one. This is where we start. What is thy only comfort in life and death? Now, before we even read that answer, what's your answer to that question? What is thy only comfort in life and death? And here's what it says, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own belong unto my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins, and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me, that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head yea, that all things must be subservient to or done for the sake of my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. He preserves me. He holds me. That I, in body and soul, whether in life or in death, I am not my own, but I belong to Jesus Christ. That's not a matter of you losing yourself or your identity in some sort of modernistic sense of that phrase. What that means is you are held securely in the hands of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And the good shepherd will never let go of you. It's beautiful stuff. You receive that kind of security as part of the flock of Jesus Christ. Then the very last phrase of what we read, it's, it's cool on a couple of levels. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. First of all, them's fighting words. <laughs> And that's exactly what the crowd thinks, because what they do next is they try to kill him. I and the Father are one, It's clear as it could be. God is your heavenly Father. I am too. I am the Son of God sent from the heavenly Father. I am God in flesh. So this is one of those moments in Scripture where Jesus is as clear as he could possibly be, especially with the crowd that is listening to him now. But then there's something else cool, the way that John authors his gospel. That verse is the literal middle of the gospel of John. It's right at the center, right at the heart of the literature of the gospel. And it's right at the heart of the theme of the gospel. We made a big deal out of this when we started the gospel of John that a little bit later on in chapter 20, near the end, verses 30 and 31, John, the author sort of breaks in and he says, now look, Jesus did a lot of other things, but these things I wrote so that you would understand who he was, believe in him and receive eternal life. John's intention through this gospel is that you realize that Jesus is the son of God and that this is how we receive eternal life. So John wants you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus makes it clear that I and the Father are one. But Not everybody is ready for that. So let's read through the next section of Scripture, beginning in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Jesus presses something interesting about good works. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. Can you imagine having this conversation with a bunch of people with stones in their hands ready to go? (laughs) It is not for good work that we're gonna stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it is, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said to him, John did no signs, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So at this point, many pick up stones to throw at Christ to kill him. But Jesus begins to talk about the good works that he has done. He says, now wait a second. For which one of these works are you trying to stone me? And in doing so, Jesus opens up a really important conversation for them and for you and for me. They're not upset about the works. They're really upset about who he says he is. And then Jesus says this really interesting thing that to you and me feels a little bit complicated But it's rooted in this interesting passage in the old testament that again of course would make sense to them so let's try to understand it at least a little bit jesus said do you remember that passage of scripture where it says i said that you are gods and if god calls them gods to whom at least a little bit of the word of god came then why would you be upset that the person who is the word of god claims to be the son of god so here's what's going on in that passage is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? So that comes from Psalm chapter 82, specifically from Psalm chapter 82, verse 6. It's a short chapter, but that chapter opens up with what the text calls a divine counsel. So God is meeting, the image in that chapter is, God is meeting with authority figures. And so, the chapter moves on at some point god says have i not called you gods it's a small g gods the term there in the hebrew can be used to describe lords or people who have a certain level of authority that term in the hebrew can refer to created supernatural beings supernatural beings who are not god and then in some contexts that word can also mean god himself so, that passage is not saying that certain human beings are like God or they themselves are God, but what it means is there are some human beings to whom a certain level of authority has been given. There are some beings in creation to whom a certain level of authority has been given. So, Jesus refers to that level of authority. He says, you're not upset by that. Why would you be upset to the one who is capital A authority shows up? And I've told you, I am the Son of God. Not just one of many with a certain level of authority, but I am the one with divine authority. Why would you be upset at me? That's the kind of argument that Jesus is making. And then he comes back to the works. And he says, listen, if you're not going to believe what I say, I need you to believe the works that I perform. Believe the works that you may know and understand. Jesus intends all of his miracles to be signs. John uses this language throughout his gospel. He uses it in those last couple of verses in John chapter 10 when others come to Jesus and say, John did not do signs, but you've performed signs. It's an important word. The miracles are not for the sake of miracles. The miracles are for the sake of us going, oh, this is who Jesus is. They point to him. Everything he does points to him. Everything he does points to the heavenly father. That's what Christ is pressing. I need you to believe what I have done so that then you will see who the father is. And if they do, Jesus says... You will know and understand, which is how my translation puts it, but it it is know and then continue to know. Grow in that interactive relationship with Jesus Christ. So in the end, these things, the changing of the water and the wine, the healing of the lame man, the healing of the blind man, it's not about the miracle, it's about the God who is behind all of them. Some believe, but others want to pick up stones to stone him. And someone to arrest him. I was reading through a sermon that uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest pastor theologians in the last 200 years, he was preaching on this very passage of Scripture. And if you think I went slow through Scripture, these guys would preach two or three sermons on half a verse at a time. So, (laughs) complain to them later on. Don't gripe to me. But as he's (laughs) preaching on this very passage of Scripture, I love what he says about this. He says, if they cannot answer holy arguments with fair reasoning, they can give hard answers with stones. If you cannot destroy the reasoning, you may perhaps destroy the reasoner. And this naturally suggests itself to the heart which is rendered cruel by obstinate unbelief. He who hates truth of God soon hates its advocate. And isn't that the case? You place the truth of Jesus Christ out there, and if someone who is obstinate in their heart and refuses to believe, they would rather get rid of you than actually deal with who Jesus is. It was true then, it's true now. But I want us to hear something specific. I believe that this is why Jesus presses this. Why is Jesus talking about what I do versus what I say? you've heard it you've seen it you won't believe and then their response think about this for a second they are perfectly fine with the good works they love the miracles they don't like what comes with it they're perfectly fine with jesus doing everything for them they think he can do for them they're perfectly fine with the miracles They refuse to accept Him as Lord and Savior. They like what they can get. They refuse their commitment to Jesus. But Jesus says His words and His deeds are one. You cannot have one without the other. And it dawns on me, friends, how much of our... Christianity is exactly the same kind of acceptance of Jesus. I will follow him as long as he does what I want him to do. I will follow him as long as he does what I like him to do. But the moment that well dries up, I might actually pick up stones to stone him. We're not killing you for the good works. We want more of the good works we want to stone you because you are placing a claim upon our lives that we're not ready to give you. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. That's what it means for him to be their Messiah and our Messiah, that everything about me belongs to him now. And if I'm not ready to lay that commitment before Jesus Christ, When things get hard, when things get difficult, when it grows complicated to follow Jesus Christ, I might be ready to deny him as well. Liking Jesus because of what he can do for me is not the same as belonging to the flock of the good Shepherd. if it becomes inconvenient or hard to follow Jesus Christ and that's the moment at which I decide I'm gonna go do something else, there I am in the middle of John chapter 10. I'm one of those who've picked up a stone who are ready to arrest him or are just gonna walk away in complete indifference to Jesus Christ. Friend, that kind of easy believeism will not change a single life. That does not save a soul. That will not create the kind of courage and faithful endurance that Christ is requiring of his church. But those who are ready to follow the voice of the shepherd, to listen to him in all situations and seasons of life, That's the faith that is a faith of courage. That's the faith that is a faith of endurance in this world. And that is the faith that is an effective witness to the world around us. In the end, we follow the Good Shepherd because He is our Savior and all that He says and does is true. Not just because I feel like I like it from time to time because of who he is and that all that he has done is true and we call others to follow Jesus for exactly the same reasons we call others to follow Jesus Christ for exactly the same reasons friends this is important for us as we go through the gospel of John because the good shepherd is actually about to lay down his life for the sheep we've been told in John chapter 10 that if we belong to him, we're going to listen to him and we're going to follow him. So there's a very important way in which now you and I, as we go through the rest of this gospel, we are following the good shepherd. We're following him to rejection. We're following him to the cross. We're following him through his death and into his resurrection. This is what it means to follow the good shepherd. Let's pray. Oh, my God.